Hi, I'm Dan Jones. And I'm Mia Lee, and we are the editors of Modern Love at The New York Times and co-hosts of the Modern Love podcast. We read love stories for a living. And by love stories, we mean essays written by real people about all forms of human connection. We're talking about everything from first dates to funerals, from sibling rivalries to new love at 85. On our show, we're going to bring those stories to life. We'll hear from the writers and also from the people who are written about. Relationships are the most important things in our lives. And the people that tell us their stories are just so brave, like way braver than I think I am most of the time. Yeah. They're so honest and so vulnerable. And listening to the stories, I feel like you absorb so much wisdom and you get a sense that you're not alone. You can follow Modern Love wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. We hope you'll join us. New episodes are out every Wednesday. From the New York Times, I'm Michael Barbaro. This is The Daily. Today. A $5 million pot of money that's gone untouched. Why the U.S. government hasn't paid a single one of the families of the thousands of civilian casualties from the war on ISIS. It's Wednesday, November 29th. Thank you for seeing us. Um, oh, thank you. Um, what's your name and who was injured? Uh, Fatima Hassan Ibrahim. And where was he when the airstrike happened? Ahmed Khan, you've been reporting in Iraq for the past year. And a couple of weeks ago, you published a big investigation on civilian casualties in the war on ISIS. Remind us of your findings. So the U.S.-led coalition says that this is the most precise air campaign in the history of warfare. Wow, wow. They were killed in the same airstrike or in a, diff- or in a different airstrike? There, was there one strike or two? How many? Okay. What, um... Of the 14,000 airstrikes it's carried out in Iraq, they say that only 0.6 percent, so less than 1 percent, have resulted in a civilian death. So we set out on the ground to see if these numbers were in fact as precise as they claim. What we found in a sample of 103 airstrikes was that one in five coalition airstrikes led by the United States resulted in civilian death. That's 20 percent, 31 times higher than the 0.6 percent the coalition claims. What you found essentially was that the United States has not acknowledged or may not even be aware of just how many civilians the U.S.-led campaign against ISIS in Iraq has killed. Exactly. One thing cannot be returned is the loss of life. Everything else could be redone or rebuilt. And as part of that investigation, you introduced us to Bassem Razo, an Iraqi who lost most of his family in one of these American-led airstrikes. The loss of life is unrepairable. Through your reporting, he gets a very rare meeting with the American military. We just wanted to start by expressing that. Not only we have to be Army, but also on behalf of myself. Exactly. He's the first person to be offered a payment for the death of a loved one in the entire anti-ISIS air war. Um, and so we are prepared um, to offer you um, a condolence payment. And so I just wanted to say first, um, explain how this works. So basically... So I want to get to why that could possibly be, that there have been no payments. But I want to first step back. Legally, what does 
the government, our government, the U.S. government, owe these victims, the families of civilians who are killed in these airstrikes? Under international law, they owe them nothing. In fact, it's entirely legal to kill civilians Hmm. as long as it's not indiscriminate use of force. The idea of paying a civilian for harm, it's a very recent phenomenon. The American people can know that every measure has been taken to avoid war. And every measure will be taken to win it. Americans understand the cost of conflict. They really amped up during the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. War has no certainty except the certainty of sacrifice. Yet the only way to reduce the harm and duration of war is to apply the full force and might of our military. These front gates to Saddam Hussein's main presidential compound were blown down by coalition forces days ago. But it's just So in Iraq, when U.S. forces invaded and took over Saddam's palaces... The grass really is greener inside the walls of his massive presidential compound. ...and found Saddam Hussein's war chest. They very quickly realized they essentially had money to use... So this wasn't money from the United States Treasury or military. This was money that the United States captured as an invading force. Originally. Eventually, they realized this was a smart thing to do, and millions of dollars were authorized from Congress every year for both Iraq and Afghanistan for this purpose. The Pentagon says it has paid tens of millions of dollars to compensate innocent victims of war over the past three years with what have come to be known as condolence payments. We also know this. This was a cornerstone of the counterinsurgency doctrine, you know, led by General Petraeus and General McChrystal, that you need to keep the support of the local population if you want to win this war. Mm -hmm. And so this was really strategic to helping win that war and to keeping those hearts and minds. By the way, the going rate for condolence payments when an Iraqi civilian is killed by U.S. forces is generally about $2,500. The amount sounds fairly arbitrary at the end of the day. That was a problem that was raised from the beginning of these payments. Among the many unanswered questions from the war in Iraq, one in particular nags at a woman from the San Francisco Bay Area. In fact, the person who probably brought this to the American public's attention more than any other was a young activist from California named Marla Rizika. She has been in Baghdad since the day that Saddam's statue fell, visiting hospitals, knocking on doors... Determined to investigate how civilians were being harmed by U.S. combat operations and to push for payments. And what she saw very quickly was that these payments were so arbitrary. They were all over the place when they were even being made at all. We'll try as soon as we can to help you get your information. And so she went back to Washington, D.C. She met Senator Leahy of Vermont, and they teamed up to basically pass a bill that would address some of the problems that they found with the military payments. It would authorize millions of dollars for assistance. Ultimately, what we can do is we can get them long-term medical care. We can get their homes rebuilt. And they passed it. We don't have to call it reparations. We don't have to call it... Uh, compensation. We just call it as part of the mission that we try to put as many of the pieces back together as possible. The woman who helped spearhead this, Marla Rizika, she was actually killed in a suicide blast in 2005 in Baghdad. And so the the fund was named after her. It's called the Marla Fund, the Marla Rizika Iraqi War Victims Fund. And again, her efforts, her personal efforts, 
led to the creation of a program that has provided $10 million to the families and communities of Iraqi citizens killed by U.S. and other coalition forces. So the fund created by this bill is addressing the inadequacies, the holes that these military payments, which may be $2,500, might be less, leave behind even when they're paid. Exactly. So this seems like an established process that you would expect to be offered to civilian victims in the war on ISIS. Yes, you would think. But? But it hasn't happened. So today, I can report that as promised, the rest of our troops in Iraq will come home by the end of the year. After nearly nine years, America's war in Iraq will be over. After the U.S. withdrew from Iraq in 2011, many of these programs went defunct. So today, the Marla Fund doesn't serve its original purpose of providing assistance to survivors of U.S. harm. So somebody like Bassam and his family could not get money from that fund right now? No, they couldn't get money or assistance. The one place where money has been authorized is actually through Congress. They've authorized for the last two years $5 million each year to be made available for these kinds of payments for civilians harmed in Iraq. But the military has not implemented that program, Mm. and it has not allocated any of that money. So to date, not a single civilian survivor of a U.S. combat operation in Iraq or Syria, not a single one has been paid since the anti-ISIS air war began. What is the process that a civilian or a relative of a civilian has to go through to get the money that we're talking about? How does anybody apply for this? There is no process. I don't even know how Iraqis would consider doing that. In the case of Basim, you had him go to great lengths to show up at the U.S. embassy in Baghdad himself and report it, and it did not result in a payment. It took a journalist picking up his case. Now, the only other payment offer I know about, it was for destruction to a car. Mm -hmm. That was also the result of a journalist asking about that case. So the only two times that payments have been offered to civilians in the air campaign against ISIS are when journalists have gotten involved and championed their cases. Yes. One advocate told me that these civilians don't stand a chance of clearing their names, let alone getting payment, unless they win the lottery of meeting a Western journalist. From everything you've just said, the U.S. has a history of making these payments to the relatives of civilians in the wars that the U.S. gets involved in. So why hasn't that happened here in Iraq in the air war against ISIS? What did the American-led coalition leaders that you spoke to tell you about why that is? Um, great. So um, can you tell me a little bit more about your job? I interviewed dozens of officials. So, Kat, yeah, would just be helpful before I start asking you questions to get a sense of People would only talk about the payments issue on background. If you're comfortable, I mean, I'll just transcribe it so that I know exactly what, you know, you're saying on background versus what you would like to be on the record. If you'd prefer... So not on the record. Not on the record. And, And many of them said they saw the strategic value of it. Many also told me that this was a moral imperative, that they believed it was fundamentally important on a moral level, not even just the strategic level. So what one official told me was that it's not that anybody is against making these payments, it just hasn't been done. He called it an aspirational requirement. 
that phrase itself is kind of an oxymoron, right? It's aspirational or it's a requirement. Those, those two things don't quite seem to go together. Exactly. But it seems like, based on what he said and others I've spoken with, that if they were forced to do it, it could get done. It sounds like what you're saying is, despite telling you that there's a moral imperative to make these payments and quite possibly a lot of strategic value to making these payments to civilians who are killed by U.S. airstrikes against ISIS, they basically just haven't gotten their act together. It's not a big enough priority. It's not something they're focused on. Is that right? They're not focused on it. And the American public also isn't putting that much pressure on this either. Today, many Americans are not necessarily seeing the fact that we're at war, even if it's conducted largely by airstrikes. And so Americans also aren't putting pressure on their congressional leaders or on the military to carry these out. And these casualties, as your reporting has shown, are in many ways invisible. Exactly. They're uncounted. And many Americans who used to grapple with this question of what does our government owe the people at harms are no longer asking that question. It's just meant to be an expression of our sympathy um, and our apology for your loss. Um, and so for that reason, we are, we are capped in the amount that we can give you. Um, so the amount in U.S. dollars is $15,000, um, which we're, but we'll be paying you in Iraqi dinar, so $17 million. So Bassam is offered $15,000 in the meeting he had with the U.S. military, an amount that, that he found to be insulting. It does seem like an incredibly small amount of money for a man who basically lost almost all of his family and, by his accounting, nearly $600,000 in property when the airstrikes landed on his house and his brother's house. Can you shed a little bit of light on the number that he was offered? Yes. This number, this $15,000, is way higher than the average payment which is around $2,500 for death. This is a man who had more than $10,000 in hospital bills, and they had seen his accounting of his home's worth, Mm -hmm. their home's worth. They had seen all of that, and they had gone above their apparent cap to make this payment. They flew people in to make this payment, probably on a flight that cost more than Mm. the payment he was even offered. Iraqi dinar. And so if you are um, willing to accept that, no. you're not willing to accept that? It's an to He rejected it immediately. He found it, in his own words, insulting. Oh, yeah. is, uh, yeah, this is, uh, I have to say, uh, sorry to say, ridiculous. <laughs> I, I, I understand that, sir. I do. If the United States was paying larger amounts, something that resembled more like compensation, For example, in in Bassam's case, where you have what is very clearly an intelligence failure, they misidentified the target. If they were to pay that in full, if they were to pay many more of those cases like it, remember, in in half the cases we found, it was likely the result of poor or outdated intelligence. Mm -hmm. So if they were paying for those claims, for example, and it was a larger amount, would they be more likely to better prevent bad intelligence from materializing in their operations. It sounds like what you're saying is if the U.S. had to pay out more for these civilian deaths, would its self-described precise air war 
become more precise because the cost of its imprecisions, its hidden imprecisions, would be too great. If they had to make these payments, you would certainly see an attempt to try to prevent these from happening if they had to pay more. But at this point, payments are the second step. The first step is just doing the investigations, figuring out what happened, recognizing that there were these intelligence failures. As I mentioned, the only two payment offers they've made were the result of journalistic inquiries. So at what point does the military start investigating these on its own, figuring out what's happening, Mm -hmm. and start making those payments, and then implementing their lessons learned to make this a better campaign. And finally, Asmat, since your investigation was completed and you told the world about the number of uncounted civilian deaths and about Bossom, what has the American government said to you? I have heard from members of the military in private capacities Hmm. who've written to me to say, I can't really express this publicly, but I'm really glad you did this. Hmm. I've heard from others, also off the record or on background, that maybe the numbers are even higher. Hmm. But in terms of an official military response to creating change or enacting the payment program, we haven't heard that yet. But it's clear that members of Congress are interested in this issue and we'll be taking it up. And what about Bossom? Has he received any word from the U.S. government? Is there any chance he's going to be receiving a payment greater than the one he found so insulting? Bossom hasn't heard anything from the coalition or American military officials. You know, he's hoping to be able to get some kind of justice, but he's still waiting. Asma, thank you. Thank you for having me. We'll be right back. When times became uncertain, Wampley pivoted their technology platform and committed to help small businesses and self-employed workers get approved for their PPP loan. In just a few months, Wampley has helped one million businesses across America to secure much-needed funding so they can continue to stay open and serve their communities. Wampley helps small businesses thrive. Visit Wampley.com to learn more. Here's what else you need to know today. Hi. Grand Slave Votes, hi. Mr. Crapo? Mr. Graham? The Republican tax plan took a key step forward on Tuesday, with the Senate Finance Committee voting to pass the package and several Republican lawmakers who were on the fence suggesting they are leaning towards supporting it after negotiations with party leaders. On Wednesday, the Senate will vote on whether to proceed with consideration of the bill, and Republicans are hoping for a full vote on the bill by the end of the week. And a federal judge has sided with the White House in a ruling that effectively installs Mick Mulvaney, a nominee of President Trump, as acting director of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. The agency had been thrown into chaos in recent days in a battle over its future leadership as two rivals, Mulvaney and an Obama-era holdover within the agency, Leandra English, 
were both showing up for work and publicly claiming to be the temporary acting director after the resignation of Richard Cordray, an Obama appointee. On Monday, Mulvaney had held a press conference to lay out what people at the CFPB should expect under his new leadership. They should expect um, that uh, this agency will stay open. Um, Rumors that I'm going to uh, set the place on fire or blow it up or lock the doors are completely false. I'm a member of the executive branch of government. We intend to execute the laws of the United States, uh, including the provisions of Dodd-Frank that uh, govern the CFPB. That being said, um, the way we go about it, the way we interpret it, the way we enforce it will be dramatically different uh, under the current administration than it was under the last. Anybody who thinks uh, that a Trump administration uh, CFPB would be the same as an Obama administration CFPB is simply being naive. Elections have consequences at every agency, and that includes the CFPB. Despite the judge's ruling, Leandra English says she will continue to show up for work at the Bureau and fight to oversee it. That's it for The Daily. I'm Michael Barbaro. See you tomorrow. Whatever business you're in, growth isn't about working harder. At ADP, they believe it's about getting stronger by turning data into insights so you can build teams that work as teams, by using their AI technology to help catch payroll errors before their errors, and by keeping ahead of thousands of changing regulations so you can keep ahead of everything else. ADP helps more than 860,000 businesses like yours grow stronger every day. ADP, HR, talent, time, and payroll.